You're listening to Health 4.0 Leadership Podcast with your host, Namratha Bagaria. Welcome to Health 4.0 Leadership Podcast. My name is Namrata Bagaria and I'm your host. My guest today is Dr. Daniel Emio. He's a professor at the University of Ottawa. Welcome, Daniel. Thank you, Nam. Very glad you invited me. It's my pleasure. So Daniel is by far the best professor that I have learned from and he did receive a teaching award recently. And uh, he's been an active researcher in healthcare uh, IT and uh, as he's not as old but as old as the field is and we just joked about that before <laughs> so Daniel can you tell our listeners uh, where are you in the present health ecosystem and what are your top three mandates yeah certainly so you're, you're putting a lot of pressure on me in, the, in this introduction thank you for that <laughs> well usually you are the one who's putting on me for my thesis and other things so <laughs> You know, it's That's your revenge. Chance. Thank you. That's my chance. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, as, as you know, my main uh, research interest is uh, surrounding requirements engineering. Mm-hmm. And this is where essentially we focus on techniques uh, and approaches to elicitate, model, analyze, uh, validate, and also manage requirements as they evolve. Um, I have a particular interest in, in IRE modeling techniques for healthcare systems, uh, especially the, the emerging type that you see in Health 4.0. So whether they relate to, uh, to mobile apps, uh, to analytics, so evidence-based uh, systems, and also process improvement. Um, uh, in that area, I also chair a new workshop, uh, namely the, the first international workshop on requirements engineering for well-being, aging, and health, uh, which will be held in uh, less than two weeks. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Switzerland, uh, but obviously we'll have presentations this year. <laughs> yes, indeed. Um, I also play a couple of roles in uh, larger organizations. So I am a board member of the Life Research Institute uh, here at the University of Ottawa, uh, which essentially focuses on life trajectories uh, through several lens, including uh, live long, live well, and live with a voice and choice. Uh, and I'm co-responsible for one of, of these aspects, so namely uh, Live Long. I'm also a senior researcher at the Knowledge Institute of the Montfort Hospital here in Ottawa, uh, where I collaborate on, uh, with other researchers on several projects related to mobile app development, uh, research uh, management, and also um, training related to uh, new systems that are being deployed uh, mm-hmm. at a large scale. So Daniel, we joked about this. You've had a long journey in health systems and health engineering. And uh, can you tell our listeners what would be the top three takeaways that you learned in, in, in your illustrative career so far? Oh, top three. I have more than three, actually. You can go ahead with as many, but minimum three. <laughs> At least three. Um, well, in, in my rich area, um, I realized that healthcare is a, is a very obviously important, but also fascinating domain uh, filled with very bright people. 
Um, but the practices that we have in requirements engineering uh, also need to be better adapted to uh, the realities of new health system uh, that need to be developed. Um, for example, there are lots of systems that will try to optimize certain aspects of a patient journey. Mm -hmm. uh, but as you probably know, in many healthcare organizations, there are um, many units that work more or less in silos. And very often the tendency is to optimize one of these units without considering the impact on the other units. Mm -hmm. uh, and at the end, the, uh, the, uh, what, what you gain in one place is lost in the other place. So the, the, there is a real need to focus on end-to-end on -end pathways and end-to-end -end journeys of, uh, of patients and visitors inside the healthcare systems uh, so that we can actually uh, realize the benefit of uh, those optimizations. So that's, that's certainly one thing I've observed. This is something that has been done in other domains that seem to be very difficult to do in healthcare, mm -hmm. uh, given the, the, the various legacy habits and systems that we have in place. Mm -hmm. um, I've seen many systems uh, fail also in healthcare because they tend to, um, to add to the workload of healthcare professionals. I give you two uh, things up, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, so essentially, if you ask one healthcare professional, whether it's a nurse or a pharmacist, a physician, to do something, uh, you need to liberate those professionals from something else that they were doing before. You can keep adding because uh, they just have no, no they have no time, uh, and the, the the cognitive load that they already uh, have is is way too high already. Uh, so, so any healthcare system that that essentially needs to be deployed uh, needs to actually help them reduce their workload and not add to the workload. Mm -hmm. So that's that's something I've seen uh, I've seen too often. And uh, obviously, this relates to the uh, usability of these systems, uh, which is uh, abysmal in many cases. Um, one other thing I also saw, uh, maybe it's another challenge, is that we need to uh, to uh, help provide the right information for decision making uh, to the right people in the right format at the right time, without overburdening uh, people with uh, tons of information that are essentially irrelevant. So, so it's well known that physicians are doing are making a lot of uh, decisions. Uh, on a daily basis, way above the the average uh, number for for the other kinds of professionals, um, and and again we need to to minimize uh, the the information that needs to be provided, and yet provide sufficient and quality information to these people to actually make the best decisions, to make the best calls uh, when they have to uh, to make them. Yeah, the reason so, so to me, this is uh, this is. Uh, um, perhaps the top three uh, that I see. Um, I, I observe also new uh, challenges in that field over the years uh, related to the fact that, as you know, the population is getting older as well. And a lot of the expertise we have is for um, illnesses and, and health issues and isolation. Uh, but we see a lot of comorbidities, a lot of people with multiple issues at the same time. And obviously those issues accumulate as you get older. Um, and for that, we don't have great systems that help us make decisions when we have 
multiple morbidities affecting people. So the, the processes and the guidelines we have and the system we have don't deal with those situations very well. And yet uh, the, the number of such situations is actually exploding these things. So we have to take that into, uh, into consideration as well. I think listening to your speak is making me very happy because I think you are a true requirements engineer. Why? Because what you said matches what of three of my guests have said before. So we had Dr. Shablam Kar, who repeatedly says, okay, great, you have variables. But with the amount of data that one watch gives me, as a doctor, I have no way to process it. And I need better data for me to help the person tell them what should we do. So it comes to better uh, visualization and better summarization of data for making it useful for a doctor and even more uh, presentation for an end consumer. So that was one thing, which was episode two. And I don't even know which episode we are because that was season one, episode two. This is season one, uh, season three, episode, I think, uh, seven, eight, eight. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's going to be like, it's, it's, it's something, you know, it started in March, but still I'm hearing that. That's one. The other thing that you mentioned was about this whole comorbidity isolation and just two or three, uh, this season, uh, one of my guests, Alex Buttigieg, mentioned this. He works with the European Federation uh, of UNESCO clubs, and he's a vice president, and he's talking about this. Because when we have SDGs for health, where we talked about clean air, clean water, environment, blah, 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 and now with COVID, everything is together. You're isolated, you're at home, you're sedentary. Yeah. And, and the last thing that you mentioned was the whole need for the systems to talk to each other. And I, I think you've met her, maybe you've not, but I think you've met her, Cheryl Netofield. I think you know her. She's from Ottawa. She's a doctor from the military. She's retired uh, uh, from the voluntary, retired from the military. And her business, Palm Health, is basically to help facilitate those communications. So she has an app that she's making and a software where you can have the different departments come together and streamline that care because they don't talk to each other. So for me, uh, you know, he's one of my favorite engineers because he understands the problems of the system. <laughs> and my personal experience has been 10 years ago when I was doing an app for uh, rural health workers is when you give them the app, the app increased the time they gave per, per woman, you know, and if you're going to replace uh, the present system with that app, the time consumed is higher because you're going through the entire protocol step by step. Whereas in real life, they were not doing that. They were using, so they were doing care worth one minute and the app made it 45 minutes per person. So you can imagine the discrepancy in the time. Um, and of course they were not reimbursed for those things at that time because they were getting money only when they wrote in a particular register. So there's also the talk of reimbursement, right? If you're going to give people money for writing in a particular fashion, in a particular way, your technologies are just adding workload with no money value for the system or for the user, right? So yes, I, it makes me happy <laughs> to hear that. Well, <laughs> unfortunately, uh, many of these issues are not unique to, to healthcare, but uh, I, I think the they have... issues. And yes. uh, and that's one of the things the Health 4.0 network, which is like was previously the leadership institute, and now we've kind of understood it's a network that we have built, is trying to tackle through the different podcasts and hopefully with all these podcasts coming out as a white paper or a book or something, uh, we want to present and open the dialogue. So Daniel, given all these challenges and learnings that we have, what do you think should be the vision of, of 4.0? network or a 4.0 health 
your your take on it, not an ideal take, but your my take, take on it. Well, I, I can tell you about what I'm doing about it. Um, so, so I like to be uh, evidence based in um, the kind of suggestions and proposals that I make to improve systems. Right. So, uh, one of the approach is, uh, for example, to uh, to extract requirements from how people actually work. Mm-hmm. So it's it's one thing to ask them how they work. It's another thing to observe actually what they do. And, and there are lots of discrepancies between how people think they work and what they actually do. And one way to uh, benefit from the, the vast amount of information that we have access to through um, health information systems nowadays is to use what uh, we call process mining. So process mining will take uh, essentially a log of events uh, happening in a system and uh, through some processing and abstraction will output um, a process model in BPMN or some other adaptation describing who does what when. And this can help uh, trying to understand what are the pain points and the, the hotspots and how people work and collaborate inside a healthcare uh, organization. And, and to me, that's the basis for improvement. You need to understand how actually things are happening. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, there are some technical challenges in that area. So I have students, for example, looking in ways to, uh, to make those models less spaghetti-like than they are in reality. So they need to abstract from, uh, from some of the noise while keeping uh, in place the uh, useful information that could inform us on the current situation inside the organization. So, so that's why we have things like a goal-oriented process modeling, for example. Uh, so once you have those processes in place, you can essentially enable um, optimizations and improvements and collaboration with various kinds of stakeholders. And we have tons of technologies nowadays that can enable us to uh, enact those process models, to, to essentially implement them, to have various kinds of forms uh, being generated automatically for mobile devices that will uh, pop up when the time is right with just the information that is needed to, uh, to move on to the next step uh, along the process. So that's, that's the kind of things I've been looking at for a while. Um, I would say that one enabling technology in that area as well is what we call um, uh, real-time location systems. So a lot of the information, um, not in healthcare information, to understand who is doing what when. And this is where this additional source, uh, essentially uh, real-time location systems, RTLS, uh, can get very useful. So essentially, it's a, it's a system that tracks the location of people and assets. So uh, we, we've been doing uh, experiments with that for a while where we, um, uh, for example, uh, understand uh, where the patients are and where the, the nurses and the physicians are. And essentially, if there is a, if there is a co-location, so if the nurse and the physician and the patient are together at the same time, you can generate an event uh, that will be correlated with the, uh, the, the healthcare process of that patient. And you can understand that, haha, now there is a visit going on. And I'm going to send essentially just the right information for, uh, to the physician to, to understand what's going on and make the next decision for that patient 
at that particular point mm-hmm. of his uh, healthcare process. So that's that's the kind of things that um, will accelerate uh, a lot of decisions again, and will help with the cognitive um, load issues that I mentioned earlier. And also this prevents people having to to go in the corridors and log in into a system and waste, you know, 10 minutes trying to figure out what the patient is all about and and, and updating obsolete uh, forms uh, for that specific case. So it's about using that information in a way that makes um, uh, the life of people simpler and easier. Yeah, Um, and I this ties into another same thing that we've been talking because I'm also, thanks to Danielle's recommendation, Life Institute, and we've been talking about decision-making. And I think that is what that ties into. So if you can talk about what you were saying and then elaborate on that too. So. Well, certainly, right. So, so there is decision-making uh, at multiple levels. So one aspect is certainly to help physicians and nurses make the right call at the right moment. Mm-hmm. And, and so far, this is what I was talking about with such systems. And, and there are ways also to use um, data with, with analytics, business intelligence, artificial intelligence to uh, amalgamate uh, this information in, in new ways uh, to offer insight that is not obvious from the uh, each individual piece of information in isolation. But we also need to have, at the same time, uh, systems that will help um, people and patients in particular um, get a bit more empowered uh, than they currently are in how they uh, can take care of their health. Uh, So uh, there are many ways uh, to do that and I've investigated a few of those uh, that pertain to to self triage for example or or guiding systems that um, when they when they observe, for example, some symptoms that they may have, will help them decide whether, you know, to just go to a drugstore store and, and take a pill, uh, or to to be encouraged to go to the emergency or to call a doctor because this could actually be uh, uh, quite bad as a situation. So so the intent here is is twofold. It's to make sure that people get uh, the right advice at the right time. Uh, from the right people, and if they need to go to the emergency, they should go. Uh, but at the same time, it's to help solve some issues with requiring of emergency rooms, uh, where a lot of people go there, and that should not have been the first thing to do, right? There, there should have been steps uh, taken before, uh, including calling uh, some of the helplines that we have mm-hmm. uh, at a provincial level uh, to get some some guidance from nurses. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so essentially trying to, to empower people to get also information in such a way that they can uh, understand it and, uh, and use it to make their own informed decision um, instead of overloading systems as what can, we can observe in the current situation. Mm-hmm. And Daniel, given that this is the vision that you present, which is useful information, meaningful information, relevant information to the right stakeholder at the right time. What do you think are the challenges and the motivations to create this vision? <laughs> well, there, there are a few, right? So, so uh, I think one obvious one, at least in Canada, is privacy. 
so privacy is great in a way because it essentially helps uh, people in an organization avoid situations where there could be some abuse. Um, so we've seen many cases in the United States, for example, of uh, stars and famous people, uh, you know, heading to hospitals for some uh, medical issue. And, and this is getting essentially out of the hospital to some of the uh, media. And, and suddenly there is a, a bad situation happening for that person because her, his or her reputation might be affected by that. And same thing with the, with the hospital. So, so we need to have protection in place uh, so that people don't abuse of very sensitive and private information. At the same time, there are situations where I think we overdid it, right? So um, I think Canada is being strongly influenced by what is happening in the U.S., where privacy is the first thing to consider in healthcare because of the risk of people and organizations getting sued for large sums of money. Uh, we, we don't have that situation uh, as bad in Canada here, and yet we have very stringent uh, privacy regulations but you know, if you if you retain information um, that is relevant from decision makers, but also from researchers uh, in healthcare, um, people die in the meantime, right? So, so I think we need a better balance um, uh, that needs to be perhaps better contextualized uh, to specific situation rather than going with the uh, the bare minimum for the entire population as regulated right now. Mm -hmm. so, and so, so there are some issues at that level that that uh, essentially need to be improved. Yeah, and that's seen in our contact tracing app. You know, this kind of an approach. Exactly right. So, so uh, there, there, there is a, a some people trust those systems too much, and some people don't trust them enough. Uh, and this is also mixed with uh, many political decisions, right? So, so Canada is moving ahead, for example, with a COVID tracking app. The province of Quebec decided recently to go against it. Okay, so, so how much is it is uh, being informed by science and how much is it influenced by political decisions? Um, that's, that's a good question. And also the future. So yeah, privacy yeah. is certainly one thing. Um, uh, usability, as I said earlier, is certainly uh, important as well. Um, I have developed uh, or helped develop one app that provides some guidance for you know normal people uh, who don't know much about healthcare. And uh, the language that was used in the initial version was essentially uh, the information that would be used by physicians uh, to communicate with each other about uh, symptoms and about diagnostics. Mm -hmm. And obviously the uh, the yeah, level of uh, knowledge that you need to understand that is way above what normal people can understand. And so the, the language level was not appropriate. Mm -hmm. and, and that's a simple thing, but until you, you start showing those apps around and then realize that nobody understands what this is all about, uh, even if technically all of this is, is well done, uh, then the system will fail. Oh, yeah. So most, oh, yeah. And I had my share of experience there, like, again, 10 years ago, because I was in charge of translating an English guideline into Hindi and then yeah. used that to train with the health workers. And, of course, uh, luckily I was there for feedback, so I was hired to refine that. And the words which I used, firstly, because the same language 
even if it's the same language, it's used in a different context once you change the province or the geography, right? And then yeah. from what what what's useful to who's using it. So there has to be room for that kind of adjustment. Uh, well, at that point, I mean, that was 10 years ago, I could like just go in my code and change those words. Uh, but when you look at things which are scalable, which have to be, you know, kind of consistent, that has to be yeah. um, a, a thought. And for me, this is the, what you mentioned, usability, and especially language is something that really worries me. And no offense, we are all in the same faculty, but a lot of our students, when they work on these things, they don't even think about it. They're so worried about their AI or their sensor. And for me, I'm crashing at the back of my mind because I'm like, oh my God, you got the funding to do this and you're doing something which is going to be thrown away eventually because it's not useful. And, and this is where requirements come into play, right? So sometimes it's not more onerous or it doesn't take more time to actually do things right. Yeah. Uh, but you need to ask the right questions. So I'm, I'm uh, helping developing another app with the Children's Hospital here in Ottawa uh, that essentially aims to uh, help uh, kids better comply with uh, fasting guidelines before surgery. Okay. Uh, the app is meant to be used by... Um, by teenagers who have phones uh, and also by parents of uh, essentially younger kids. Um, so one question we have is, should we use the same language for both types of customers or of users, mm -hmm. right? Um, or can we get away with one level of language that would be suitable for both? Um, but if you don't ask yourself that question, in the first yeah. place, you won't put the mechanisms in place to actually exactly. Exactly. ensure that. Exactly. And, and we're also trying to get it translated to uh, to the the CHIO, the Children's Hospital is also responsible for some of the population up north uh, in the country. Uh, many of them don't speak French or English, right? So, um, but sometimes getting translators for such a language is, is very difficult because we have, you know, 40,000 people maybe who speak that language and, and not a lot of them are actually available to do that. And again, yeah. you need to understand what is the, what level should I target uh, for the uh, population that will be using those levels along the way. Yeah, I think one of the opportunities from these challenges, from my personal perspective, and this is me, my personal view, is uh, when you look at product development, especially from engineering field, there is a need for empathy, okay? There's an, a need for a huge empathy in the education that we have, because right now it's all about who can optimize better. And that's how you're awarded degrees and uh, things like that. And uh, well, my little take is Natalie was kind enough to let me make a 4.0 introductory course. I've tried to put a lot of stuff in that course, which is not engineering, but it's gonna help you make better health, uh, get a holistic perspective on health education and how health works. Well, I, I disagree with you. I think this is engineering. Okay, it's just that we don't do it enough. <laughs> okay, so thank you. Then thank you for backing me up. And thank you. It's official. It's on, it's, a, it's on a public domain that Nam is an engineer, which I have been struggling since forever being in the department, the being the, I don't even know, the white and the black or the black and the white somewhere. <laughs> But yeah, exactly. Like my point is, um, like I learned so much of technological stuff, which is so great because I didn't even know that those things can happen. 
but then the context of doing that is so different because it's people that we are changing and people don't change that easy, whether it's a consumer or whether it's a, a healthcare provider or, or even a policymaker. And like, if, 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 if we, if I go back to all the summit uh, that we did in June this year, it was, everything was about, okay, technology is ready. Where is the policy? Like, can I get reimbursed? Can privacy be upgraded? Like these kind of bottlenecks, which are genuine bottlenecks and uh, the patience of a policy student is different from the patience level of an engineering student, right? It's because the space of innovation is very different. And uh, thanks to policy, we still have fax machines in Canada, which, which nobody else. <laughs> well, we're, we're getting rid of them thanks to COVID. So that's probably one of the good side effects of a pandemic. Yeah, <laughs> People yeah. realize the end. Yeah, but it's not yeah, yet. The gone. opportunity to upgrade a few, a few part of the system. But I, I agree with you. I think we don't take uh, enough of a, of a systemic view of how those uh, new applications should be uh, designed and implemented, deployed, and, and used in the end. Uh, so there are many facets that are ignored, and it's so much more comfortable to optimize uh, yeah. some, some machine learning algorithm to death um, uh, and, and still miss the big point that, you know, nobody's going to use that system the way you think they are. Yeah, yeah, they're yeah. supposed to use it. And so. actually, that leads to what are the opportunities? Like, we talked about the problems, and we always talk about them. But then, according to you, what are the opportunities? Which is obviously one is interdisciplinarity that we have, that we have to provide. Yes. And what so, are these? So, so uh, you're... you're, you're... Uh, exactly right on this point. Um, uh, I think a lot of uh, the work that needs to be done uh, in health 4.0 systems uh, need or require multiple skills that no single discipline will have. Um, so we need to, uh, from, from an academic point of view, we need to uh, enable uh, people to have more opportunities to collaborate with people outside the, the mainstream field where they're doing their degrees, for example, uh, so that this becomes a habit uh, when they yeah. Uh, yeah. get to the market. So that's certainly something I would like to see. Um, unfortunately, a lot uh, of universities in Canada are using a system where faculties are quite siloed and isolated mm -hmm. from one another, right? They have their own budget, they have their own objectives, um, and we don't have good place to enable multidisciplinarity and make sure that it happens and make sure that it is actually rewarded. Mm -hmm. That's the second part, incentivization. So incentivize, right? So um, the, the carrot and the stick. Right now we have none of these things. So a lot of uh, multidisciplinary work is happening right now, but it's essentially based on the goodwill of people and it shouldn't have to be like this. Um, because right now you have to go against the system to make those things work. And the system gets in the way. <laughs> well, I, I, I hope my dean is not listening to me right now. I'm sure he's listening to everything that's out there. It's that. So there are some, some barriers that need to disappear. Uh, there, are, there is a need for better... Uh, communication, collaboration, and a reward system at that level. So that's that's from my angle. Um, yeah, it's good you mentioned academic. communication because I was going to jump on the next thing is this. 
um so for me uh while i have respect for the uh, the knowledge that an engineering mind brings because it's amazing like i didn't know to think that way so i learned how to think differently but there also comes with a challenge of communication i'm not stereotyping here but the fact that you will have to take the time and the patience to write an email with in- enough information to communicate to someone who's not in your field not use jargons have global vocabulary lists you know and actually understand that communication is a part of the project it's not just having the requirements and start building stuff um because what i see is a huge gap in the way industry in engineering functions and academia is functioning and not just ufo in in across across that i see there's a lot of catching up with agile and other techniques which have improved communication and collaboration that need to happen and um especially communication because we still have geniuses mm-hmm. who are sitting by themselves don't want to deal with anybody and <laughs> creating something and that's not yeah. going to work i agree that agility is quite useful here because one of the thing it does is to reduce uh the time it takes to actually deliver something so so you deliver less but more frequently yes. and you can readjust uh, along That's the way based on, on new knowledge and new stuff has been created in the meantime um and 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 you're quite right in the sense that uh, communication is still um an issue sometimes uh, at times i'm also surprised by the the quality of the communication of our own students uh but if i look uh, i'm also involved in the uh, the co-op uh, program the co-op office and um the, the the famous soft skills that employers always look for uh um include communication skills obviously yes. and also teamwork yes and that's the complete uh-huh. isolation that we do at least at phd and all we have i feel like thesis and phd overall need to be upgraded into a more collaborative leadership thought leadership outcome i mean you have to contribute individually but uh, personally the world has changed and we need to catch up with that yeah but well, this is very cultural in a way uh, if i look at my own university so uh, in engineering it's quite uh Uh, actually it's a good thing to have multiple co-authors on a scientific paper yes right it shows that there was collaboration people have agreed with each other to deliver something um if you look at the uh communication uh for example department of communication um as a phd student if you don't have several papers with only your name as a single unit uh you don't graduate Morris I, yeah. I, I maybe I go a little bit too far but the culture there is to is to publish single papers uh so so where is the collaboration in that context right so yeah thank god I haven't worked with them I would complain even more that I do <laughs> <laughs> and they are in communication what do you expect you know <laughs> <laughs> see that's the irony of life here eh? so <laughs> it's because i don't like to communicate i'm doing a phd in communication <laughs> but of course don't forget that phd is not just about communication so yeah yeah <laughs> so so daniel is if if we, if we have to summarize this whole conversation as a takeaway for for students or for people or policy makers or anyone who's listening what would be a 30 second elevator pitch <laughs> well i guess it's 
uh, step back a little, surround yourself with people from other disciplines to get the real story. Um, ask questions, ask the stupid questions because you'd be surprised by the implicit knowledge that is out there uh, and, and some of the uh, bad assumptions that people make. Uh, take those things into consideration up front a little bit more than what we do right now, despite agility. Uh, and this will probably augment your chances of delivering useful uh, healthcare systems in the future. Thank you. And uh, it's my personal shout out. If you haven't taken Daniel's 8101 class, please learn. Uh, it's, it's, I think, the most, the most amazing way he teaches how to do systematic literature review. <laughs> and uh, this is uh, just endorsing that uh, it's important that we all have basic research skills, which uh, Amiot teaches no better than anyone else. So this is my little pat on your back, <laughs> which is not... Pressure again. Thank you, man. <laughs> pressure again. No, but it's honestly, it's one of the best courses I've taken. And I had so much of phobia of writing one. And after taking your class, at least I knew there's a method. Not that I've notched up my game to that level yet. But hopefully, and then hopefully you'll consider me as your TA sometime. So... <laughs> So thank you. Thank you, Daniel. This was a wonderful conversation. Well, thank you. This was, this was great. You're doing a great job at this. It's a very interesting way of collaborating. Yeah, this is, this is how I can, you know, sit at home and still talk to people. Um, so yes, thank you. And thank you listeners. And if you want to know more about Professor Amio and his research or his work, I have provided links below. And if you want to know more about us, you know, our Twitter coordinates at health 4.0, sorry, at health 40 leader. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, ma'am. Take care. You're listening to Health 4.0 Leadership Podcast with your host, Namrata Bagaria. 